You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for February 19th, 2023, the last Sunday after the Epiphany. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. The Transfiguration is the greatest spiritual experience in the New Testament besides the resurrection appearances. It is more important than the angelic visitations of Gabriel coming to Zechariah in the temple or to Mary. It is more important than the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus has performed, all of which pointed toward his Messiahship. And it is more important than the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that spiritual event that uh, began the wave of the Jesus movement and the church. In St. Matthew's Gospel that we're reading from today, the transfiguration is like the, the hallelujah chorus in Handel's oratorio. It comes about two-thirds of the way through, and it is a peak movement, a peak spiritual experience. And in the Christmas Epiphany cycle that we're in, as you know, Christmas and Epiphany are really all one. We call them two seasons, but really one season. This is the Amen Chorus. Epiphany means manifestation of God in Christ, and there's no story in the Gospel that tells this, uh, this manifestation better than the story of the Transfiguration. The mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of Christmas is disclosed and the divinity of God is exposed in Jesus. And just as it says in that great Christmas carol in the second verse, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This is in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you'll recognize that. So here we see Jesus fully human and fully divine, and his messianic glory doth shine out of all of that. Now the transfiguration is Jesus's uh, mountaintop experience par excellence, right? This is a peak spiritual experience for Jesus. It is an intimate experience of the transcendent divinity of God. And in the spiritual life, spiritual theology tries to understand how it is that we can categorize our spiritual experience. And, and in that, there is something of a yin and yang. The yin side of it is known as cataphatic experience, the via positiva, the positive way. It is the way of spiritual experiences. And in the story of the transfiguration, we get it all. Theophany being a manifestation of God, and we get so many of those theophanic events. We get the divine light, we get the divine presence, we get visions and visitations and voices. It's all there. Now this is not to say that Jesus didn't have any other mountaintop experiences. We know from a close reading of Luke that Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray all the time. Anytime Jesus has to make a major decision, he goes up in the mountain to pray. We know in Matthew's Gospel, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, mimics the law that, uh, that Moses gets from Mount Sinai. And next Sunday, Jesus is going to go up on the Mount of Temptation. When you listen to the gospel next week, notice that the Spirit led him up to this Mount of Temptation. 
And there, Jesus uh, experiences the complete other side of yin and yang. He experiences the apophatic way, the via negativa, the negative way. He, it's the way of deprivation. It's the way of spiritual darkness. It's the way of no spiritual experience, the complete opposite of what Jesus experiences today. This story is in Mark, and it's in Matthew, and it's in Luke, and the way it's told this morning, what Father Justin just read, uh, what is in your order of service, it says that Jesus led Peter and James and John up a high mountain. And if uh, your, 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 the ears of your heart were pricked by high mountain, up on a high mountain, uh, this is the right thing, because we should all be hearing Handel's Messiah, the, uh, the oratorio. This is the air sung by the alto. And once I say it, you're going to go, oh, I get it. I wish I could sing it, but I can't. And you'll, you'll sing it in your mind. Oh, thou that tellest good tidings design, get thee up into the high mountain. Oh, thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And that's what's happening here. Behold your God in Christ. And then the, the, the alto aria continues from Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. That is exactly what happens on the top of Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor being the place that is venerated as the place of the transfiguration. The scriptures say, and he was transfigured before them, like metamorphosis, and his face shone like the sun. This mimics Moses from the passage that was just read. Uh, it, we don't get the whole of the passage, but uh, Moses goes up on the mountaintop. The divine cloud settles upon there, and after 40 days and 40 nights, Moses comes out, and his face shines like the sun, so much so that when he comes down, he has to wear a veil because the Israelites cannot stand. They can't, they can't look upon his face. Now, there is one major difference here. So in Moses's uh, shining face, we have a lunar experience. Moses, like the moon, uh, his face is reflecting the divine glory of God. It's kind of like he has a sunburn. In Jesus's uh, situation, we have his shining face. We have a solar experience. Uh, like the sun, Jesus's face shines from a light that comes from within and comes out. It's like Jesus ate the sun. They say his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. The Greek word for dazzling, our language just has such a hard time catching it because it's, it's better than dazzling. It's saying something like his face shone like a crack of thunder in the darkness that lights up everything. That's what Jesus' face looked like. Uh, in Mark, they, he says uh, his clothing was white as no fuller on earth could make them. In other words, even your dry cleaner can't make white clothes like this. Right? This is the clothing of angels and archangels. This is heavenly light. And remember that this likely takes place at night. 
We don't get it in this story, but we get it in Luke's story where it says the disciples were half asleep and half awake. And so the radiance that is dazzling out of Jesus' face and his clothing is all the more um, shocking uh, in the nighttime. Now, in the, in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity and the other side of the theological world, Christian theological world, they make an enormous deal out of the transfiguration. It is central to their understanding of, of who Jesus is, uh, the piety of, of Eastern Orthodoxy, and they have a very elaborate theology of what they call the uncreated light. This is the divine light that emanates from God, and this is a super big deal. We shouldn't miss this. This is what we're headed for in our death, is this divine light. And this divine light that emanates from God is at the very heart of, of interfaith dialogue with Buddhist mystics and Hindu mystics. They all want to talk about this light. That's, they want to talk about the kenosis, the emptying of Jesus, and they want to talk about this light. And the Orthodox speak of this light as the light of Mount Tabor. As I said, Mount Tabor is the location where this light descended upon Jesus. And all of the religious art in the East, all of Eastern art takes its inspiration from the Transfiguration. They call this light in French, la lumière tabarique, I love that, the light of Tabor. And this is in all, almost all icons, you'll see that um, radiant gold, think in your mind about uh, Orthodox icons, you see that radiant gold, that is the divine light. You might see it in Jesus's halo, you might see it in the background, uh, the luminescence, the divine luminescence, which is in the story being illuminated. And this light is alive. It, it makes our light like shadow. We might see this in the scriptures where the scriptures will say that we are people who walk in shadow. They're talking about the shadow being that the light we have is inanimate. It's not alive. This uh, light of Tabor, I experienced this light once in my life. And like the disciples, it happened in darkness. And it was, I was trying to figure out how to describe it to all of you. It was like being electrocuted with transcendent life. Uh, it was ecstatic. And the, the light was filled with life and um, the light was alive. And it overwhelmed my senses and my emotions. And this is very common if you read about people who have experienced these certain spiritual experiences. And uh, it is as though there is too much life and there is too much love and, uh, and, our, and our senses are like a cup of water at, um, you know, trying to catch Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. It's awesome. It's an awesome amount of water. Uh, and, and this light is like trying to put a cup underneath it. It blows the cup out of your hand. It blows your senses away. And when the light emerged in my body, I screamed very loudly, I love you, I love you, over and over and over, screaming this, I love you, at the top of my lungs. It was incredibly unnerving to the person I was with, uh, who did not know what to do with me. But anyway, that's another story. 
Anyway, as the story goes, uh, suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And notice that it happens, boom, suddenly. This is how mystical experience happens. It doesn't come with a warm-up. There's there no layup drill before this, okay? The divine consciousness with, you know, breaks into our lives like that. Remember, this is what knocks Paul off his horse uh, because the, the other dimension breaks in. And then we hear that Moses and Elijah appear. So what's that all about? Moses and Elijah um, appear. This is like having the whole history and holy heritage of the Hebrew people appear on the mountaintop. All those books of the Hebrew scriptures, all the pages, all the people, all the experiences, the law, the prophets, the wisdom. In these two holy figures gets incarnate in their glorified bodies. Everything that they've preached and taught comes, and it comes as Jesus is standing there, and Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of all the, of that whole, that whole godly movement, and these two men now finds its peak in Jesus. And Peter, who is witnessing this, says, Lord, you know, it's good we're here. Uh, if you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And this is, of course, Peter being Peter as Peter is, and what he's talking about here is, is Sukkot, the celebration of, of um, the Israelites' 40 years in the desert, where in Jesus' day they would go to Jerusalem and live in a tent, as they did in uh, Jesus's, I mean, as they did when they were in the desert. Nowadays, if you go to Brooklyn, across the Williamsburg Bridge, you'll see Sukkot as the uh, Balconies on the, and many of the apartment buildings have a kind of wooden structure on them. That is Sukkot. That's the tent. Now, as Peter is saying this, look, look what it says in the scripture. It's so good. It says, while he was still speaking. I love that. God has to interrupt him because Peter doesn't know when to shut up. A little self-knowledge there. Okay? Has to interrupt him. And it points toward the historicity of the event. And then it says, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, right? So suddenly again, it's not like there's a weather movement, bam, the bright cloud comes. And this is the bright cloud of God's luminosity. And in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a lot of it. This is the bright cloud. Remember it says that at the Exodus, they, uh, was, they were led by a cloud by day and a fire by night. This is that cloud. This is the cloud that landed on the top of Mount Sinai. This is the cloud that the people at the foot of Mount Sinai thought was the mountain on fire. This is the cloud that landed upon the tabernacle in the wilderness, making it holy. And when the cloud landed on the tabernacle, Moses couldn't go in it. It was too holy. He couldn't get his body in there. This is the cloud that landed on the temple after David made the temple. And this cloud lands on Jesus. That's the point of the story. It lands on Jesus. Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is the new tent. And then out of the cloud, once again, comes the theophanic speech, the voice, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, now, of course, we remember Jesus' baptism where we heard... Uh, the similar message. So this is mysticism with a prophetic message, and it leaves no doubt about the identity of Jesus. And then what do the disciples do? They do the only thing that you can do. Bam! They fall on the ground, face down. 
They have no place to put this experience. It's too, the experience of the divine is completely overwhelming. We are human beings who live in shadow. We have no way to process this divinity, this beyondness of God. We do not understand it. And they go face down in what is known, the mysterium tremendum, the weightiness of holiness pushes them face down. And then look what Jesus does. He comes over and he touches them. It's beautiful. Anytime Jesus touches anybody in the New Testament, he touches them to heal them. And he says, get up and do not be afraid. Every time an angel shows up, every time there's a divine a visitation, the angels always begin with, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw Jesus alone. And that's the purpose of the story. Jesus alone. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. On this stage, there is one man, one man. And he at the peak, there is one man. He is the man in whom God is fully present. That's the whole point of this story. And then as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus tells them to tell no one the so-called messianic secret. The story is not ready for prime time. We know, I mean, you're all gathered here or you're streaming in here this morning that when we pray, we enter into Jesus's spiritual life. That is the difference between the Christian spiritual life and every other form of prayer. All of our prayers are entering into Jesus's spiritual life. That's what our Father who art in heaven means. We are entering Jesus's prayer to the Father. And so this event of the transfiguration, which, which bursts out of Jesus, overflows into Peter, James, and John, flows down through time into us. That's what the reading from 2 Peter was all about. As we know, in, in Eastern, many Eastern religions, there is what we in English call, in their thought, in enlightenment. And enlightenment in Buddhism or Hinduism might be understood as an awakening to wisdom. It might be there's a kind of um, insight into transcendental truth or reality. It might mean that someone has entered nirvana. Nirvana means, and I love this, blowing out. That's what nirvana means, blowing out. That's what happened to me. I got blown out. And uh, it means freedom from desire. In Western secular culture, to, to be enlightened is self-realization, whatever that means. So, uh, but what does it mean for us as Christian? What is Christian enlightenment? Well, we might talk about that as illumination, and that is what this story about. This is the story par excellence of Christian enlightenment, and it is this. We see the truth of who Jesus is. That's it. We know who to follow. And then the second portion of enlightenment is that we follow in his way. So I'll finish with uh, just the last thing that God says when God says, listen to him. In Greek, it's way better. In him, it is to him, comma, listen. And what that is to say is for us, enlightenment is always leaning in to Jesus. That's what enlightenment is. Keep your eye on the light and listen to him. Elizabeth said a great thing in our podcast. She said, I wonder why that's not a commandment. That should be a commandment.
can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.